0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Luke chapter 17, we're continuing our summer study in the parables of Luke. As you're turning there, I don't know, uh, I would venture to say that most of you that are um, parents of multiple kids, you've found that as you add kids over the years, you become maybe less intentional in some aspects of your parenting. Um, I know I'm guilty of this. You know, our first child, AJ, when he was younger and he would have had a pacifier if it had fallen on the ground, we would have gone through extreme measures to sanitize that, to clean that, to make that right. Uh, Apollos comes around as our fourth kid and it's pick it up and throw it right back in your mouth, less intentional, at least on my part, maybe not on Lauren's, but at least on my part, throw it right back in there because you're going to be just fine. I'm also less intentional, sad to say, in some of the parenting aspects of just instilling um, obedience into my children and honestly have created a monster, I think, at times in my house that rears its head a lot, and that is this mentality or mindset that incentives are needed to be obedient to mom and dad. And maybe you've experienced this dynamic in your house too where you're, you're fighting against a child who is born into sin, born rebellious. Uh, even if they've made a profession of faith, they're still very fleshly, right? And they push back against your authority. And if you're not careful, you go quick to the bag of tricks and say, hey, if you'll do this, then I'll give you this, right? Like if you'll clean your room or if you'll pick up the living room or if you'll eat your vegetables, then I'll give you candy or I'll give you screen time or I'll give you ice cream, um, I go to that bag of tricks way too often, right? I, I just get tired of maybe the pushback and trying to instill obedience for the sake of being obedient because God has given you as, uh, I've been given to you as your dad, right, to my kids. And so I'll go to the bag of tricks and start pulling out stuff saying, hey, if you'll just do this, then I'll give this to you. To the point that my kids start to rely upon that, even for like the silliest things, right? Like we were at Whitewater recently and I asked one of my kids, I was like, hey, go ride this ride with me. And they looked at me and said, can I get ice cream if I do? And I wanted to like smack him. I wanted to be like, no, like the treat is that your dad is off work today and he wants to ride a water slide with you. Like that should be enough. Like that should be, that should be the incentive. Like come ride with me. But no, it was like, do I get a treat if I'll do this for you kind of a thing. Luke 17 addresses this for us as adults, uh, because if we're not careful, we fall into a similar trap where we start to believe that our faithfulness and our obedience warrant some type of treat in return, to the point that if we're not getting it, then we may not be as faithful as we should be. I want to read to you our text today. You're going to see that the parable, as always, falls into the context of some bigger level of teaching that Jesus is doing. And so we're going to see how the parable fits within the context of what's going on in this passage. So we'll start reading in chapter 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Verse 7, "'Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say,' We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Our summary sentence for today, Jesus calls us to ordinary Christian service of protecting others from sin, rebuking others when they stumble, forgiving others when they repent, and doing all of this faithfully, whether we ever feel appreciated for it or not. Jesus calls us to ordinary Christian service of protecting others from sin, rebuking others when they stumble, forgiving others when they repent, and doing all of this faithfully whether we ever feel appreciated for it or not. For our kids, serving Jesus faithfully doesn't mean we always get a treat for doing so. Now the context of this parable comes again within the bigger context of teaching that Jesus is giving. Now remember, The parables are designed to give either further insight or further confusion to the hearer based on the heart condition. Is the hearer trying to better understand Jesus' teaching, or is he already rejecting Jesus' teaching? Now, this teaching is coming to the disciples, and so primarily it's meant to give further insight into what is happening. We see Jesus teaching the disciples here at the beginning, verse 1, he says to his disciples, and then we see the apostles responding, verse 5, with, with a statement about what he has just said, and we'll see how all of that fits together. But ultimately here, the context of our parable is that Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples on the dangers of being tempted personally and causing others to stumble into their own sin while also challenging them with the need to rebuke and forgive others regularly. So you have at first... This idea that there's a danger, that sin and temptation is destined to come to us. How are we going to respond to it? How are we going to handle it? Are we going to be so guilty of sin that we actually cause other people to sin? Then there's instructions about, okay, when sin is happening, what do we do? Well, we rebuke those that are in sin. We forgive others who repent of their sin, right? And so that's kind of the context or the teaching that's taking place. Uh, It's difficult teaching because forgiving others isn't easy. Um, rebuking others isn't easy. Avoiding temptation and saying no to sin isn't easy. So there's difficult teaching here. Jesus is laying out expectations for his disciples as to how they are to live. And then he gives this parable in verses 7 through 10 to help solidify their perspective about this teaching. So let's jump right in. There's three sections that I see here. The first section being Jesus's teaching then this middle section where the apostles respond with some thoughts, and then Jesus clarifies some things, and then we'll see the parable. So beginning with number one, be cautious with the dangers of sin. Be cautious with the dangers of sin because we are prone to sin, right? We're prone to sin. We're prone to cause others to sin, and I would say we're also prone to not forgive people well too. Like these are all things that we're susceptible to. We're susceptible to sinning ourselves. We're susceptible to causing other people to sin, dragging people down with us. And then we're also not great at forgiving each other, especially when the, the forgiving involves forgiving someone who has particularly hurt us, right? And so Jesus cautions us to be aware of the temptations and the stumbling blocks that come with all of this. Number one here, we need to be ready and on guard because temptation is sure to come from others. He says to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. We have to be ready and on guard because temptation is, is, is essentially promised to us in that Jesus is just saying, this is part of the fallen world. Temptation comes, not just to unbelievers, but to believers as well. So he's saying like, just a matter of fact, this is how the world works. This is our, our biblical worldview that temptation comes, temptation to sin will come. No one's immune from it. It comes from other people even. So it's not just this abstract idea that at times we'll be tempted. Jesus even says, be careful basically about who you spend time with because temptation is prone to come from other people. He says, woe to the one through whom temptation comes. So he says, disciples, you're gonna be tempted and that's bad, but what's even worse is the person who brings the temptation to you. No one's immune from this. We're all susceptible, which means we need to know our triggers. We need to know the triggers that cause us personally to fall into sin at times, right? All of us have different triggers. There's all sins that that beset us, that easily beset us, and we need to be careful and guarded against that. There's obvious uh, temptations that come with um, technology, with devices, right? We don't even have to go into the obvious ones. But social media as a whole can really create levels of discontentment and envy and covetousness, which we said weeks ago is the same as idolatry. How does it do that? Well, it presents a perspective about what the way of life is for somebody else, and and everything inside of us is tempted to want what we see in the realm of social media. We desire and crave things that we can't have. We long to have the lot lines that somebody else has as they post pictures of their their baby, as they post pictures of their house, they post pictures of their vacation. We're naturally drawn to those things. We long for those things. Know your triggers. Know your triggers and avoid the temptations that are sure to come. We're not immune from them. There will be temptations to engage in sin. There's going to be temptations to react sinfully to the other sins as well. We may be drawn to do what other people are doing. We may be drawn to have bitterness in our heart because of the sins that are committed to us. So Jesus says as a whole, temptations to sin are sure to come. Be on guard. Be aware. But then secondly, he gets into the idea of cautioning us not to be the type of individual that pulls other people into sin too. So number two, we need to be intentional with our attitudes, our words, and our actions due to the impact they may have on others. Are we ever guilty of drawing other people into sin? Be on guard against what would cause you to stumble, but we also must be on guard against what would cause other people to stumble as well. Right? Jesus is letting us know personal sin is certainly serious, but leading others into their own sin, well, that's strongly addressed here, which could be in the form of the words that we use, right? We wouldn't necessarily think that the words we use could be classified as false teaching. But if we are in a conversation with somebody, we're frustrated, we're discontent, we're grumbling and complaining, and we're bringing words into a conversation that are not consistent with God's word, that don't express contentment with him, that don't express trust in him, dissatisfaction with what he's doing in our life. We're false teachers because we're encouraging someone else to be dissatisfied with God on our behalf, right? Be on guard against your attitudes, your actions, your words, Uh, what could be classified as false teaching, your actions, what could be classified as scandalous living even. I put in my notes, our attitudes and actions are never isolated in their impact towards ourselves only. Our attitudes and actions are never isolated in their impact towards ourselves only. Others can be influenced greatly by how we are handling and acting in any given situation. We have to be careful our attitudes and actions could pull other people into sin, too, which means there's really no neutral state. Either we're leading people to Christ or we're leading them away from Christ. So we're either acting Christ-like in that we're pointing people to God, or we're acting like Satan in that we are seeking to deceive others and draw them into sin. We have to be careful. We have to be on guard. Jesus' says, temptations to sin will come. I asked this, this question to myself in my notes. Do you give assurance to those not following Christ that there isn't an urgent need to? Let me say that again. Do you, do I, give assurance to those not following Christ that there isn't an urgent need to? And I would challenge our youth in this, right? So youth, you fall into a category of people who traditionally are viewed as people who don't take their faith seriously, right? Right? Doesn't matter if you've grown up in church. If you're if you're a teenager or on the verge of being a teenager, um, it's like everybody loves you as a kid, as a child. You have childlike faith. Everybody wants to be like a child with childlike faith. But then you enter into the middle school, high school years, and everybody kind of views that age group as well. They're typically disinterested in Jesus. They kind of have their wayward streak of doing things they want to do, making their mistakes. They're not really serious about Jesus. Hopefully they come back around to childlike faith after college and get serious once again. I mean, I would challenge our youth that are sitting here listening to me right now, be different in that aspect, right? Be different. Whatever school you go to, be different in that context in the sense that you are serious about your faith, that you're drawing people to Christ, that you're setting a totally different type of standard than the norm in that context, right? Be different because everybody's looking at you and saying, Because you're a teenager, you probably don't take your faith seriously. Man, be an individual who takes their faith seriously. Don't draw other people into sin, even by your complacency, right? Don't say you're a Christ follower. Don't claim to be a Christian and then give this half-hearted effort of following him to where lost people would look at you and say, I mean, if that's what's following Christ, like, why would I do that? And be serious about following Christ. Don't let other people be drawn into sin by your complacency. Jesus uses extreme language here to get our attention, and it's uncomfortable to read this because it is so extreme, but he's basically saying, you would be better off dying a horrific death than to cause others to die spiritually. Like, you read this, and you think, I mean, what could be worse than than tying this weighty anchor around your neck and being thrown into the ocean, right? Like, this millstone is so heavy, there's no human being uh, that, that could really counter the weight in the ocean and, and, and basically suspend themselves or float with this thing around their neck. It would have sank immediately. And if it's hung around your neck, it's going to take your neck first. I mean, I mean, you're just diving to your death. And Jesus paints this horrific picture and says, better to do that than to be sitting in a classroom tempting one of your fellow classmates to sin. Like that would be a better use of your day than the other. Like go tie a millstone around your neck and drown yourself then lead someone else into sin. Like it's not it's not literal, right? Like it's not saying like go do that today. He's using extreme language to get our attention to say man it is a big deal to draw other people into sin. Which means we need to be super intentional with our attitude and our words and our actions to make sure that we're not doing that. And then number 3. We need to be proactive in addressing sin and reactive with a forgiving spirit to encourage repentance in others. Again, continuing with Jesus' teaching here. Temptations are sure to come. Woe to the one through whom they come. Be better if you drown yourself than to give in to leading someone else into sin. Verse three, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, turns to you seven times saying, I repent, He must forgive him. This is where the the hard part just continues to increase here. Being proactive to address sin, being reactive to forgive sin, to encourage repentance in others. Now there's two explicit commands here, right? Don't lose the fact. Yes, this passage is absolutely about forgiveness, but it's also very much about the rebuking piece as well. Two explicit commands here as, as, as his disciples. Rebuke and forgive. So not only do we, he, do we not help people sin, right? So don't be a temptation, don't be a stumbling block. Know the people you're with, know what might cause them to stumble. Don't bring a stumbling block to them, right? So don't help people into sin, but also there's this idea here that we're to help people out of sin as well. Don't help them into sin, but certainly help them out of sin, First, with rebuking. Be loving enough to point out to others when they're falling away. And this isn't easy because this is confrontational and it feels difficult, right? And we're worried about how we'll be perceived in the eyes of the one that we would be addressing. But here's what we're prone to do, right? What we're not inclined typically to do is to go to the individual who is in sin and try to address that with them. What we are far more prone to do is to go to someone else and talk to them about the sin that this person's doing, right? We're great at talking about the sin, just not with the right individual, right? Jesus says, you rebuke the individual who's in the sin, right? That word rebuke maybe has harsh connotations to us, and so I think it's important to say that um, we're not talking about being guilty of telling others or, or being harsh towards others. We don't want to be all about rebuking And miss the forgiveness piece that's supposed to come, right? Because that's the goal. The goal is repentance and forgiveness. And if we come at it with a harsh tone, we're never going to end with that goal. right? So as we rebuke, we have to keep in mind there's a goal for this person to repent so that I can forgive them. So we rebuke. The other command here is to forgive, to be loving enough to restore when someone does repent, don't be so forgiving, though, that there's no rebuking, because if we're not careful, we'll be silently tolerant of other people's sins. Which, again, they're being led astray, and we need to rescue them. We need to help them out of that sin. Don't lead them into further sin by not addressing their sin. Rebuking and forgiving, it's two specific ways that we remain on guard against sin in our own lives. Right Now, Jesus doesn't address this, but I think it's implied we should be quick to receive rebuke if someone comes to rebuke our sin. Like, we should see that and be thankful for that. He's not specifically addressing that, but I think that would be implied here. What he is specifically saying, though, is to rebuke and to forgive, and how does that fit into the context of us being on guard against temptation? Well, look, if I rebuke others, I'm speaking truth to myself that their sinful action's not okay, right? If I don't rebuke somebody's sin, I run the risk of being complacent and even tolerant to the point that I may be led into it. They may become a stumbling block to me because I don't rebuke it and get them back on track, right? So how do I, how do I guard against temptation? Well, I don't let myself, I don't let myself be deceived into thinking that this person's sin is okay. I speak truth to myself by speaking truth to them. But I also forgive as a means of avoiding temptation because by forgiving, I keep bitterness from my heart over being hurt because unforgiveness is a stumbling block to avoid here too. First Corinthians thirteen five. Uh, some translations say love is not resentful. Other translations say love does not keep record of wrongdoing. That's important here. For us to really forgive, we can't be in the habit of record keeping. We just can't. Because there's a command here to forgive. To forgive others. To keep bitterness from our heart over being hurt. I put in my notes here, every time someone repents, someone else should be forgiving them. Okay, so think of that imagery. I think it's in uh, A Wonderful Life. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets their wings, right? Every time someone repents, someone else should be forgiving. That's how it works, right? Jesus says when someone repents, someone else forgives. When someone repents, they get forgiveness from someone. That's how it's supposed to work. Every time someone repents, someone else should be forgiving them. Repentance demands forgiveness every time. J.C. Ryle, who Chris mentioned recently on on his post, uh, says this, Forgiving others is a test of being forgiven ourselves. Let me say that again. Forgiving others is a test of being forgiven ourselves. Here's what Matthew 6 says about this. Part of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. All right, so this would be real consistent with what we're talking about here. Temptation comes, we want to steer clear of it. Verse 14, Jesus goes right into this idea of forgiveness. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Put a little note here in my notes. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Now we've talked about this through other parables already. Right? The idea that if we've truly been forgiven, then it opens our heart to forgive others as well. It's a sign that we're truly saved. Right? It's a sign that we're truly saved. It's a sign that our, our faith is working properly in our life. And we'll get into this in a minute. But if you're having trouble forgiving anybody in your life, any person in here, if you're having trouble forgiving, then there's something off with your faith right now. Because forgiven people habitually forgive is what Jesus is saying here. We're just in the habit of it. It's just what we do. You could do the same thing to me seven times today. And if you come repent seven times today, then I'm obligated to forgive you all seven times. As sin mounts against us, we keep forgiving all the more. To be in a habitual state of forgiving. And the burden of responsibility here, notice, is not on the person confessing right Jesus doesn't speak here to any type of principle that would say now if you've sinned against somebody you need to really mean it when you repent so that they can feel good about forgiving you he doesn't say that right it's almost like he puts the burden of responsibility on the forgiver i wrote down better to err on the side of forgiving one who is not genuine than to withhold forgiveness from one who is. Let me say that again. Better to err on the side of forgiving one who's not genuine in their repentance, right? I'd much rather stand before God one day and say, God, I made a mistake. I forgave that person, and you know what? They weren't really genuine. They didn't really mean it when they repented versus standing before God and saying, God, I didn't forgive them because I just didn't believe them and yet find out that they were truly repentant, right? I'd rather err on the side of just forgiving people Because they're they're repenting. They're saying they're sorry. They're asking for forgiveness. I want to err on the side of forgiving them. Why? Because God says he rejoices over sinners that repent. Right? Like I want to look for opportunities to rejoice over the things that God rejoices over. I want to be in the habit of forgiving, not in the habit of being one who withholds my forgiveness until you show that you've earned it, right? Like I don't want to be the opposite of the prodigal son's father. Remember, he comes running to his son before they ever have a conversation. Just the fact that you have turned and started coming back to me was enough for him to forgive him, right? God rejoices over sinners who repent. He's telling us here, have the same heart. Be in the mindset of forgiving others. Temptation is there. It's going to come. You're going to be tempted to not forgive. You're going to be tempted to be bitter. You're going to be tempted to fall into deeper sin. He says, rebuke the sin. Forgive the one who was in sin. Seven times a day if necessary. Keep forgiving people. Now, let's get into the second section, number two. Be active while growing in your faith. Be active while growing in your faith, because here's what the disciples respond with, right? It would be like if I've just said everything that I've just said, and somebody raises their hand and says, "Lord, increase my faith," right? Well, what are they saying there? This is hard. This is hard teaching, God. You're telling me to forgive when I've been hurt, to keep forgiving, to keep opening those wounds up, to keep forgiving when I've been hurt, to 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 step out of my comfort zone and confront others when they're in sin, to be on super high alert about temptation in my life, this is hard. The apostle said to the Lord, verse five, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Number one, we need to certainly desire growth in our faith, which comes from understanding truth and learning to trust God more. That's what faith is. We've defined this for years here. Our understanding of faith is we trust truth, right? So faith isn't blind, right? It isn't just we're just told to accept something at face value. No, it's truth, right? We we are exposed to truth. We understand the truth and we trust it, right? So the more truth that we get, the, the, the younger you are in your faith, whether it's by age or just... Uh, length of time since you were saved, but for let's think in terms of a kid. A kid gets saved, right? AJ, my son has made a profession of faith. He is a believer. He is a Christian. There are things about God's word he doesn't understand yet, so his faith is still very childlike. But as he grows and matures, he will understand the truth of God's word more, and then he will therefore trust God more as he understands these concepts more. Right? So his faith will increase and he will have more trust in God as he grows. doesn't mean that he's getting more saved. It just means that his faith and trust is growing, and it should. To guard against sin by rebuking rightly and forgiving generously, that requires supernatural faith. The apostles are right to ask for this. They are right to pray for this. They need faith. They need to believe more. Why? Because they're having to believe that someone's sin is so serious that it needs to be avoided, it needs to be repented of, and then it needs to be forgiven with the just judge of the universe determining how to bring justice to the situation. Why does faith need to be had when we're called to forgive like this? Because essentially I'm having to lay down my rights for justice and trust him. That's where the faith piece comes in because when I forgive you for wronging me, I'm basically letting you off the hook right? I'm letting you off the hook and saying, God will handle this. He'll either handle your sin on the cross, and Jesus's blood will cleanse you from it, or he'll come back one day and he'll judge you for it. Either way, justice will be served, and I'm trusting that he'll do it, and I don't have to do it myself. I don't have to avenge myself. So the apostles are like, hey, increase our faith because we're tempted to want justice ourselves. We're tempted to avenge ourselves. They're right to pray for this. But notice Jesus' response here. I think it's important for us. We need to be active with our current level of faith as only a tiny amount is needed to accomplish basic commands. We need to be active with our current level of faith as only a tiny amount is needed to accomplish basic commands. Notice what Jesus does here when they say increase our faith and then he starts talking about a faith that could move trees into the ocean. He's using hyperbole here to make a point. He's exaggerating. What he's saying is, if you just had a small amount of faith, you could move a tree. Surely even a smaller amount of faith than that can lead you to forgive other people. Right? He's saying like, which is harder, forgiving somebody or commanding a tree to uproot itself and move itself to the ocean? He's saying, you only need a small amount of faith to do that. The the faith of a mustard seed could do that. Now, he's not indicating there that anybody has that level of faith and should start moving trees to the ocean. What he's saying is, is that you all have less faith than that, right? You have enough faith to forgive each other. That's the point that he's trying to make here. He says, yeah, you definitely want to keep growing in your faith, but don't think you don't have enough faith right now to do these commands, right? Be obedient, Jesus is saying. Be obedient with the faith that you currently have. He isn't minimizing the need for more faith, but he is downplaying the need for a major increase in faith to carry out this command. I think what he's trying to communicate here is that this is ordinary Christianity. This isn't extraordinary stuff. Extraordinary stuff would be you moving trees to the ocean with your words, that would be extraordinary. This is ordinary. Don't don't get a big head in thinking that like I got to have, or if I'm able to do this, I have so much faith. He's saying, like, hey, this should take a little bit of faith here to forgive other people, to be obedient, because this is ordinary Christianity. It's the basic way of following Christ, to watch out for yourself, to watch out for others, to rebuke others when they're in sin, to forgive others. That's where our summary sentence is tying all this together. He's calling us to ordinary Christian service, to protect others from sin, to rebuke others when they stumble, to forgive others when they repent. But then we come to this last part, doing all of this faithfully, whether we ever feel appreciated for it or not. Because we can swing to the other side, right? We can be so disobedient in these things that we need to be called to repentance and we need to start doing these things. But if you're faithfully doing these things, right? you're faithfully trying to live in such a way where you're following Christ, and you're, you're trying to avoid sin, and you're trying to call others out of sin, and you're trying to faithfully forgive others when they stumble into sin, if we're not careful, we'll start to think that we deserve a treat for it. We'll start to wonder, where's our party? Where's our appreciation? We'll be like the elder brother from the other, product, from the other parable. We'll be like the elder brother who says, "Man, I've been faithful to you are these years. Where's my party yet? Where's my robe? Where's my ring? Where's my party? Number three, be duty-minded, not incentive-driven in your approach to serving. Be duty-minded, not incentive-driven in your approach to serving. I was reading through one guy's sermon, and he kept making the point that we have to resolve to see ourselves as servants and not volunteers. And he made the point to show that there's a difference between the two, right? There's a difference between committing yourself to service and being a servant and volunteering. The big difference is a volunteer chooses when, where, and how they're gonna serve, right? Volunteers sign up specifically to do specific jobs for a specific period of time and can opt out really whenever they want to. A servant, though, commits to really doing whatever's asked of them right? Doing whatever is commanded. There's, there's higher obligation. And if we're not careful, sometimes we probably think of ourselves as volunteers for Christ versus servants of Christ. We want to pick and choose where we serve, how long, and depending on the return that we get, we may not sign up to volunteer again for that. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table, Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? Serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Here's the point of the parable. Again, it's tied to the teaching that was just given. Doing the above. Everything we've talked about. Avoiding sin helping others get out of sin, not causing others to stumble into sin, forgiving others when they're in sin. It's about faithful obedience. But be careful that faithful obedience doesn't create a prideful need within your heart for appreciation to keep you serving in these ways as though carrying out these duties commanded to you warrants your celebration. Let that sink in for a minute because I can't be the only one that's guilty of this. Because this mindset infiltrates every aspect of my life. It's not just in my service to God. It's in my service to every single human being in my life. I fall prey to this entitled perspective that if I've done for you, you absolutely should appreciate it. And most of the time you should celebrate it with a party or with a ring or with a robe there better be some type of inclination that you know I did it for you. like That's the sin and the pride in my life. Whether it's serving within this church, whether it's serving within my home, whether it's serving my wife or my kids or my teachers at Trinity, my my students at Trinity, I expect to be appreciated for it. And what Jesus is saying is, you're just doing what you were commanded to do. You're just doing what was asked of you. You're a servant. Why would you expect more appreciation than is warranted here? Doing the above is faithful obedience. And I think that's what Jesus wants to highlight here for the disciples is he's calling them to obey. Will they? Will they obey and, and do the hard things to forgive other people? Will they just simply say, you know what? I'm a servant. I gotta get on board here and do this. I gotta be obedient my faith is enough to do it. There's enough faith there present to carry out the obedience that Jesus has called me to. Notice in this parable here, the servant doesn't get to quit early, right? He puts in a hard day's work. He's outside, he's plowing, he's tending to the sheep. I mean, this guy's multi-talented, right? Maybe this, maybe this master is not as rich as some of the other masters we've talked, to, talked about in the parables. And he has to like multitask his servant here, right? He's got a shepherd who's also a farmer, it also happens to be his cook, right? This guy doesn't ever really get to quit. doesn't get to quit early. He doesn't come in from the field and get to sit down with his master and eat. No, as soon as he comes in from the field, the expectation is get cleaned up, get dressed properly and make my dinner and serve me. Let me eat and drink before you do. doesn't get to quit early. He doesn't get a special seat with the master and he doesn't get a thank you. Now, he probably gets his paycheck, which is what was agreed upon, Right? He probably is getting compensated for whatever was agreed upon, but the idea here is that he doesn't get more than that. He doesn't get special celebration or special appreciation. This guy's just doing what he was contracted to do. Notice what Jesus isn't saying here. He isn't saying that appreciation and celebration is bad and should never be given, right? So for those of you that are here that that work for me at Trinity, it's not that, hey, my response to this is gonna be, I'm never gonna show appreciation to you for all the hard work you put in at school right? That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not trying to say, hey, remove all the appreciation that you've ever thought about giving because people don't need it. What he is saying though is that appreciation and celebration is not necessary and should not be what sustains our service. That's what he is communicating. There may be celebration. There may be attention. There may be appreciation. But if it never comes, you keep doing what you're called to do. You keep serving faithfully. You don't give up, you don't quit. The context here, the rebuking, the forgiving, the fighting sin, it's what we're commanded to do, it's our duty. And as we extend this type of service to others around us, it may not always come with a lot of fanfare. But forgiveness is our duty as servants. And it's not a reason to boast, and it's not a reason to feel entitled to a thank you, because you're only doing what's expected of an ordinary Christian. Now think about a bigger implication here outside of this teaching. Think about who we're called to serve as Christ followers. It's not just Christ. I can find verses for for virtually everybody in my life. I can find a verse in scripture that tells me I'm supposed to serve them. I'm supposed to serve those that are over me. I'm supposed to serve my bosses. I'm supposed to serve my spouse. I'm supposed to serve my family. I'm supposed to serve one another, right? I'm really called to serve every single person in my life. And I'm called to do it with dutiful delight. Not slavish duty. It's not that, all right, I'll do it. I'm not gonna be appreciated for it, but gosh, I've been called to do it, so I guess I have to do it. No, Ephesians 6, remember what it says. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of our service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, and not to, not to man. I man, our heart's to be in it, right? I'm to fight to serve whether I'm ever appreciated for it, and I'm to do it with delight, right? I'm to find delight in the fact that the, that the king of the universe saved me out of my sin when I was a rebel and an enemy of his and has called me now, has given me the privilege to serve with him, right? To, to borrow the language I shared earlier, He's asked me to come ride the water slide with him, right? And it may be a little scary and it may be a little challenging and it may be something I've never done before, but he said, hey, come ride the water slide with me. And I shouldn't be sitting there going, well, will I get an ice cream for it? God has called us to serve, to serve within his church, to serve as a follower of him. And that is the incentive. We get to participate in his kingdom plans, We get to be found faithful when he comes back. We get to get ushered into eternity with him. That's the incentive. Whether we ever get thanked for it earthly here, that's the incentive. Be on guard though, because we're prone to be prideful, to be self-righteous, to think highly of ourselves, and to expect rewards. These last three things I'll give to you. Number one, we must be mindful that serving faithfully at times may feel mundane, ineffective, and without value, due to a lack of appreciation. We must be mindful that serving faithfully at times may feel mundane, ineffective, and without value due to a lack of appreciation. I mean, this servant worked hard, seemingly. I mean, based on what's described here, you would think this guy put in a really good, hard day's work. He's been out in the field all day, then he comes in and cooks a great meal, and, and, he, and he prepares it for the master, he may have done a fantastic job, but no special attention seems to be drawn to it. Here's why. Because he was expected to do a fantastic job. Right? Don't fall into this mindset of thinking that, hey, I did a fantastic job. I should be notified about it. I should, I should be celebrated for it. Not if you were expected to do a fantastic job, right? Like we're, ex- we're all expected to do everything with excellence, to do it to the glory of Christ. I shouldn't expect an additional award for that. I shouldn't expect an additional thank you for that. Just doing what I'm called to do. Number two, we must be mentally prepared that our location and job descriptions may change throughout the day, but we're always called to serve. You may do a fantastic job. Great, you're, you're expected to do a fantastic job. You may have done fantastically for half the day or for three quarters of the day but the day's not over, right? We talk about this sometimes uh, in, in our discipleship or our D groups with men. Like we talk about the challenge of like going to work, working all day long, serving all day long and having to fight a mentality that when we come home, we should be served once we've arrived as though the day's over. And we talk about how, no, you leave the house to go work, whether you're male or female, you leave the house to go work, you come home and the, and the work just continues. The job description changes. You may not be farming, you may not be tending sheep, but now you're at home to make a meal, but you gotta keep serving. The day's not over. You don't get to quit early. We have, to, we have a responsibility to serve everyone in our, in, our, in our life. The servant moves from outdoors to indoors. He goes from doing earthly care to homely care, but his mindset has to say the same. A servant serves whenever, wherever, for whomever, doing whatever it takes. And number three, we must be on guard against pride that could set in if we focus on how faithfully obedient we've been. Look, the jobs sometimes are going to be mundane. They may feel ineffective, especially if, if the boss doesn't come out to the field and look around and see what you did all day. Right? He may not come out and say, wow, you did really good with my plants today. You did really good with the sheep today. Nope, he just trusts you enough and expects that you did a fantastic job without having to come look. But because he expected it and you already agreed to do it, there doesn't have to be an additional thank you there. We have to be mentally prepared that we're always on call to serve, not just in certain locations, all day long. And then we have to be on guard that when we're doing a fantastic job and we're doing it all day long, we don't grow prideful in thinking the party's coming, right? The celebration has to come, right? Because look at how faithful I've been. Be careful thinking you deserve recognition for doing what was asked of you. Do what is expected without expectations of praise. Now, here's why I think entitlement is, is on the rise because so many do far less than what's expected that those that do what is expected expect more as a result. Because this is kind of the day and age we're living in right now, especially like if you think in the work context, you could do everything that your boss has commanded you to do and do no more than that and still have this like entitled perspective that I've done far more than my other employees who aren't even doing what's expected of them right? You can look around and say, hey, as a Christian, I'm doing a lot of the ordinary things a Christian should be doing, but most of the other Christians I know, they're not doing anything close to that. They're not doing anywhere close to what's expected. So therefore, we've kind of lowered the standard for what would warrant a party, right? Now we think parties are given for those who do more than other people, not for doing more than what was expected, right? We're comparing ourselves like the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Lord, thank you that I'm not like this guy, our righteousness still falls well short of Christ. Entitlement. We want to push back against it, thinking that we're owed something for simply doing what was asked of us. But I think it's important to make this last note as we close. A time of rest and appreciation is coming, even if it never comes here. I remember working at Snowbird for the two summers that I worked there, and your expectation from, like, Monday afternoon until Saturday afternoon was that you were go, 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 go serve, 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 from sunup to sundown, and really from before sunup to well after sundown. But there was always Saturday afternoon that was coming. And when that last meeting ended and you were released until Monday afternoon, pretty much every Saturday that I worked, I went straight to the Mexican restaurant And I ordered three soft tacos and I drank as much soda as I could because that was my feast. That was my celebration that my service for this week has ended. Notice that the servant does get that eventually, right? He gets this eventually where he does get to eat at the end of the day. But don't miss Luke chapter 12 because, man, like this this is super special when you read it in the context of what we've just said. This idea that do, do, do. Don't expect appreciation. Don't expect to be celebrated. But look what Luke twelve thirty five says. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servant who, servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. And have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. And that's the picture that Jesus gives to us, that there is a day coming where we will be celebrated and served by him when he comes and returns and ushers us into community with him forever. He gives us this picture that, hey, earthly masters may never do this. They may never invite you to sit down and eat. They may never sit down and serve you. But he says, I'm going to. I'm coming back and I'm going to invite you to recline at my table and I'm the one that's going to get dressed up for it and I'm the one that's going to serve you. And Jesus gives this, this encouragement to us. If a common servant is faithful to obey orders of his master who does not reward, how much more should we serve our master who has promised to do so? We may not see it here on this earth and we have not earned it, But he has promised it. He has promised to his faithful servants that we will see the fruit of our labor in the end. Let me give you this quote by Lauren Sanny, I think is his name. He's the founder of the Navigators Ministry. He says, you know you are a servant by how you act when you're treated like one. You know you've reached a a good mental perspective that I am a servant by how you act when you're treated like one. When you're treated like a servant, do you get offended when you're not appreciated properly? Do you have a desire to quit? And you don't have the servant mindset yet. You need to exercise the faith that's been given to you and you need to be obedient, do what's been asked, do what's been called of you, whether you ever get appreciated for it or not. I'll give you two points of application. Number one, we need to obey the explicit commands here. Don't lose sight of what the teaching was that warranted this parable. Our call to rebuke and to forgive. Is there anyone you need to address about sin or is there anyone you need to forgive in your life? Those are two points of of clear application for us today. If we see people in our life that are in sin, we need to go get them out of it. Don't be a stumbling block and lead people into sin. Be the rescuer, right? Be the rescuer and pull people out of sin. People come and repent to you, you'd be quick to forgive. Man, be a habitual forgiver, because forgiven people forgive. Number two, adjust your motives. Man, be honest and ask yourself this question. How frequently is your attitude about serving? How frequently is your level of service, like the effort that you give, how is that impacted by whether you were appreciated for it or not? Are you Are you in the category of individuals who man, I'm gonna have a crummy attitude about what I'm doing right now because nobody seems to be appreciating it. Or I'm gonna start giving less than my best effort because it doesn't seem to matter to the person that I'm doing it to, right? Is your attitude and your level of service being impacted by whether you're appreciated for it or not? Because again, Ephesians says, "Man, we do everything for Christ, not for earthly men, not for earthly women. We do it for Christ right so whether whether your 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 colleagues or your boss or your spouse or your children or your friends or your neighbors whether they ever show appreciation or not for your service you don't quit serving you keep doing it you keep plowing the field you keep tending the sheep you keep cooking the dinner you keep doing it because that's what you're commanded to do we do it whether we're appreciated or not knowing that one day we're going to recline at table with Jesus and we will see our reward Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you for these truths. They're difficult. They're hard because they push against our sin nature and they, they push against our tendencies to, to be prideful and to be self-righteous and selfish. But God, if we're truly believers, we have enough faith to, to act on these commands and to do these commands, to see ourselves as servants of you. God, help us to be obedient as we leave today. Lord, help us to be on guard against sin in our own life, to not yield to it. Help us to be concerned enough about others to have hard conversations when needed to pull others out of sin. And Lord, when we're hurt and when people sin against us and they're drawn to repentance, Lord, give us a heart of forgiveness. Help us to see that by repenting, you're rejoicing over this individual's repentance. How could we not? And how could we withhold forgiveness when we've been forgiven so much? Lord, help us to remember that forgiven people forgive. But Lord, help us not to lose sight of what the parable's point is. That we're gonna, we're gonna try to do these things and we're gonna try to be faithful and obedient in these things. And then more often than not, nobody's gonna notice. And there's gonna be very little thank you. And there's not gonna be a party probably. And Lord, that, 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 that's tension against everything inside of us that desires to be noticed for our obedience. We want to be appreciated. God, help us to see the, the, long, the long aspect of this story, that we're doing this for you. You see all. And whether we're ever appreciated for it here or not, God, give us the desire to serve because you've commanded it. Whether we ever get a treat or not for it here, Help us to see that you've called us to come participate with you in an exciting journey where we get to serve alongside of you. Help that to be enough for us. Help it to be enough for our pride and our self-righteousness. pray that you'd kill those things in our life so that we can serve more and more faithfully. Increase our faith, Lord. Help us to use the faith you've already given us to be obedient to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.